0: Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Friday, September 10th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, what exactly is Blue Moon flavored ice cream and where did it come from? Plus, NASA is planning to purposefully hit an asteroid with a spacecraft. More on why and when that'll happen. And this year's Ig Nobel Prize winners have been announced. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. So, until I saw this recent article from Atlas Obscura, I had completely forgotten that this thing existed. I hadn't thought about it in decades, I'm sure. You know, it was a relic of my childhood that I had to take a second to clear the fog from my memories to even be certain I'd actually experienced. But then it all came slamming back to me. I am talking about Blue Moon Ice Cream. If you're from the Midwest in the US, you know what I'm talking about, but if not, you may be confused. Like one Redditor who replied to a post asking where to find Blue Moon flavored ice cream in New York City by asking, what, like the beer? No, poor deprived Redditor not like the beer, this electric blue dessert is a monstrosity all of its own. It looks less like something you should eat and more like a dropping that a smurf left behind. In the kindest interpretation, it looks like the imaginary food that filled the plates of the Lost Boys in that iconic food fight scene from Hook. And that's actually an apt comparison, because the ice cream is both something that tends to be favored more by kids than adults, and bears a peculiar flavor that almost no one describes the same way. Citrusy, vanilla y, almondy. Is it bubblegum? Raspberry? Cotton candy? Fruit Loops? Lemon? Black cherry? Marshmallow? The descriptions go on and on. Part of the confusion, apparently, is the fact that the ingredients are kept behind lock and key. Quoting Food & Wine, Many attribute the invention of Blue Moon to Bill Sedan, who was the chief flavor chemist at Petran Products based in Milwaukee in the 1950s. The recipe, which still remains a secret today, was first trademarked by the company. Since then, Blue Moon has gone on to become a staple of Midwestern ice cream culture. It's made by a number of creameries in the region today, but they each keep their proprietary recipes a secret. End quote. But journalist Nara Schoenberg, in an investigative piece for the Chicago Tribune in 2007, questioned this origin story, which she refers to as the Milwaukee Theory. Quoting Schoenberg, There are two significant problems with the Sedan scenario, the first of which is that papers filed by a Petran successor company with the US Patent and Trademark Office in 1977 include the claim that Petran's Blue Moon flavoring was first used in commerce as early as 1939, more than 10 years before Sedan joined the company in 1953 or 54. Also adding to the uncertainty is the Tribune's finding that Blue Moon ice cream turns up in newspapers as early as the 1930s, an era when similarly zany flavors including pitch black licorice, green-hued pistachio, and sticky, chewy Rocky Road were popular. In November 1936, the Charleston Gazette in West Virginia reported the arrival of Blue Moon Ice Cream, a quote, fruit mixture with delightful flavor and color, at the city's Blossom Dairy Stores, home of pumpkin and plum pudding ice cream. In 1949, the Berkshire Evening Eagle in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, ran an ad for Blue Moon Ice Cream, something new in blue ice cream, a flavor of its own. Try it, end quote. Now, the punitive controversy here is not just stripping Sedan's legacy of having invented Blue Moon, but placing the origin of the flavor somewhere other than the Midwest. Blue Moon has endured so strongly in the Midwest that one person created a map called the Blue Moon Core Area, or BMCA, which shows Blue Moon being by far the most popular still in Wisconsin, Michigan, and the directly surrounding areas. To think that it could have actually come from the South or from New England is pretty shocking. But, of course, like I discussed with the history of the Boston Cooler recently, a drink now most popular in Detroit, the history of these things is always kinda murky. So many weird food innovations from the late 19th through early mid 20th century had multiple origin stories, some of them legitimately being invented independently at the same time in two different places by two different people. But what's even murkier about Blue Moon than its origins is, again, its flavor. What exactly is it? Even people selling it don't often know. Rebecca Stoffs, the sales director of a Wisconsin chain called Chocolate Shop Ice Cream, explained to Atlas Obscura that flavoring companies are separate from ice cream companies. A small number of flavoring companies source Blue Moon flavor and send it out to ice cream companies to mix into their ice cream. They might each taste a little bit different, but Stoffs says it's, quote, generally within the same flavor realm, end quote. To crack at the mystery, Atlas Obscura recruited John Snyder, the owner of Il Laboratorio del Gelato, a place here in New York City that makes over 300 flavors of gelato, to taste test Blue Moon and try to identify its flavor. He threw out some fancy suggestions like cardamom and K-lime, as well as saying it tastes specifically like the blue diamond marshmallows in Lucky Charms. But Atlas Obscura also shared one of the wildest theories about Blue Moon ice cream's mysterious flavoring. Quote, In 2007, Weber Flavors owner Andrew Plinert told the Associated Press that the secret ingredient was more common than people realize, and that it was in fact an agent used in the pharmaceutical and beverage industries to hide bitter or harsh tastes. Piecing together Plinert's hints, Casey Steinbrink, writing for New, a news website for Northeast Wisconsin, presented a new theory— the secret ingredient was castoreum, she wrote, an FDA-recognized food additive extracted from the sacks between a beaver's pelvis and tail, which they spray to mark their territory. And it's said, curiously, to smell like vanilla. End quote so, uh, gross, but for what it's worth, none of the people that Atlas Obscura spoke to who allegedly know the actual ingredients seem to have heard this theory before, so I think we're safe. Still, I'd rather cross-check the ingredients of some of those Blue Diamond Lucky Charms than go down the beaver path. The mystery of what exactly Blue Moon is, it seems, will endure, but if you've never had it, I do encourage you to give it a try if you're ever somewhere in the Blue Moon core area, Given its mystery ingredients, most of the DIY recipes online don't quite seem to hit the spot, but there are a few included in the links in the show notes in case you want them. As for me, I am on a quest to find a lactose-free Blue Moon ice cream so I can try it again. So if anyone listening knows of any places serving the real deal but without the lactose, send me a message. The going opinion about how to avert all-out catastrophe from an asteroid colliding with Earth used to be basically blow it up, shatter it into small enough chunks that would simply get burnt up by our atmosphere. But it turns out, that's kinda tough to do, so over the years, the main objective has instead been to simply push an asteroid off its course. Quoting the New York Times, The way to do that, scientists generally agree, is deliberately setting up a collision between an asteroid and a much smaller, less massive object. Known as kinetic impact deflection, such a collision alters the trajectory of the asteroid ever so slightly with the intent that its orbit changes enough to pass harmlessly by Earth. It may barely miss, but barely missing is enough, said George Flynn, a physicist at SUNY Plattsburgh, end quote." But now, one of the challenges is not breaking the object up so much, because you could break it into pieces that are still on course to hit the Earth and are too large to burn up in the atmosphere. Fortunately, scientists have spent a few decades now shooting things at meteorites in the lab to test and perfect their methods, and soon NASA will be testing out kinetic impact deflection on a real asteroid in space. Quoting the MIT Technology Review, The Double Asteroid Redirection Test, or DART, has as its target Dimorphos, a stadium-sized asteroid that is orbiting a much larger asteroid called Didymos. The plan is to hit Dimorphos at a speed of 6.5 kilometers per second with the car-sized DART spacecraft, which weighs about a third of a ton, changing its almost 12-hour orbit around Didymos by a few minutes. A European Space Agency mission arriving five years later called HERA will check to see if the mission worked. The impact will only have a small effect on the orbit, but that should be enough to deflect an asteroid from Earth's path in the future, so long as we hit it far enough in advance. HERA's arrival will be the only way we'll know for sure what has happened to the spin of Dimorphos, as DART will be destroyed by the impact, and Dimorphos is too small to be seen in detail from Earth." End quote. And just to be clear, Dimorphos is not currently on a trajectory to hit Earth. The only asteroid scientists currently have their eye on for terrestrial impact is Bennu, which is only a small possibility and wouldn't be until 2182, so no need to worry. Hopefully by then we'll know way more about how to throw any Earth-bound asteroids off their path. But in the present, there are still many questions. A study published in an upcoming edition of the journal Icarus ran simulations to model how exactly DART might alter the spin and rotation of Dimorphos, and the researchers were a bit surprised with how chaotic the asteroid could potentially become. Quoting again, "...when DART slams into Dimorphos, the energy of the impact will be comparable to three tons of TNT exploding, sending thousands of pieces of debris spewing into space." One of the researchers describes it as a golf cart traveling at 15,000 miles an hour, smashing into the side of a football stadium. The force of the impact will not cause any immediate changes to Dimorphos' spin, but within days, things will start to change, according to study lead Harrison Agrusa from the University of Maryland and his team. Soon, Dimorphos will start to wobble very slightly. This wobble will grow and grow as the momentum from the impact throws the rotation of Dimorphos out of balance, with no friction in the vacuum of space to slow it down. Dimorphos may start to spin one way and another. It may start to rotate along its long axis, like a rotisserie. Within weeks, Dimorphos could spin so much that it enters a chaotic tumbling state where it's spinning uncontrollably around its axes. In more extreme scenarios, the tidal lock with Didymos could break completely, and Dimorphos might start flipping head over heels, says Agrusa, end quote. The exact details of what will happen will depend on the location of the impact, whether dart hits its target of the center of Dimorphos or is slightly off, as well as the shape of Dimorphos, whether it's more oblong or spherical, which we can guess at but we won't know for sure until hours before dart hits. And again, we won't know what happens until that ESA mission HERA arrives five years later. We'll have a little bit of an idea thanks to an Italian satellite called the Alicia Cube that will capture images of the event for a few minutes, but it won't be there long enough to witness any long-term effects of the impact. As Wired put it in an article following a visit to see the DART spacecraft in the lab last fall, quote, No one is exactly sure what will happen when the probe impacts its target. We know that the spacecraft will be obliterated. It should be able to change the asteroid's orbit just enough to be detectable from Earth, demonstrating that this kind of strike could nudge an oncoming threat out of Earth's way. Beyond that, everything is just an educated guess, which is exactly why NASA needs to punch an asteroid with a robot." End quote. DART is scheduled to launch anytime between the end of November and mid-February, catching a ride from a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket before stretching out its solar panel wings to fly solo. The impact will happen sometime between September and October of next year. It's that time of the year! The Ig Nobel Prize winners have just been announced! The 31st First Annual Ig Nobel Ceremony, yes, 31st First, was held virtually last night, September 9th, recognizing some of the most unusual, offbeat, and funny achievements over the last year in science, medicine, and technology. As the Ig Nobel website says, they honor, quote, achievements that make people laugh and then think. End quote. The Ig Nobel's are much more well-intended than something like the Razzies. They're recognizing that a team's research was super weird, but not that it was bad. And the awards are even handed out by real Nobel laureates, so that's pretty neat. The prizes are broken down into 10 categories, and here are some of the highlights from this year. The Medicine Prize was won by a team who successfully demonstrated that orgasmine during sexual intercourse is as effective at clearing nasal passages as medicinal decongestant, though its effects don't last as long. The Kinetics Prize went to a team investigating why some people physically run into each other when walking down the street, The transportation prize was awarded to a team for, quoting Mashable, researching whether suspending sedated rhinos upside down in the air by their feet is worse for them than a more horizontal configuration, which is good news considering how many rhinos conservationists have transported like this, end quote. And the Peace Prize went to a study that I had bookmarked for this show for months, but I don't think I ever ended up using as a hypothesis that humans evolved facial hair as a protection from getting punched in the face. The results from that one still aren't too conclusive. But hey, maybe you can conduct your own experiment with your friends. And if any of those studies particularly piqued your interest, check out the Ars Technica link in the show notes, which goes into a bit more depth on each one. Well, with fall right around the corner, you may be starting to plan some autumnal activities with your family or friends. You know, maybe a pumpkin patch, a haunted house, perhaps a corn maze. Well, if you live around Minneapolis, instead of a corn maze, you could visit a hemp maze. Ted Gallaty from Zombrota, Minnesota, is a farmer who designed a maze using his hemp crop as part of a deal he made with the Minnesota Department of Agriculture. The hemp maze is part of Galladies' efforts to educate people about the various uses of hemp, and he says the maze and other farm activities are family friendly. Although one of those activities, according to the farm's website, includes a kitty graveyard, which sounds a bit ominous. But if you're bored with corn mazes, you can check out the two acre hemp maze in Minnesota. What a time to be alive. Well, that is it for this week. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and cocky.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on Monday.